Chapter Four of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Four. Sister Aloysius, who did errands in addition to her duties in the bookstore, trudged by the students' dining room, paused, and returned to write a message on the blackboard beside the door. Trillium, a delivery for you in the office. Not bothering to sign it, because all the girls knew her square block writing, she put down the chalk and tramped on. Her feet hurt, and there were too many errands to be done. Up in the auditorium, Sister Raymond sat watching the rehearsal of Act One of Mustard Seed. The annual play coming just before the Christmas holidays was the cultural high point of winter. So far as audience approval was concerned, Sister Raymond had no doubt of the play's success. Let the doting relatives see their darlings walk across the stage without falling flat on their faces, and the universal verdict would be that it was all just lovely. But Sister Raymond was a perfectionist, not only for God, because she did his work, must everything be perfect, but to satisfy her own impeccable requirements. We'll get it right, we'll get it right, she kept assuring herself, fighting back the bugbear which for the past half-hour had been nipping ever larger mouthfuls out of her belief in mustard seed. He was the silent bugbear, the great Tolwartson, seated beside her with his chin in his hand, his attention so profound that it could almost be drawn in straight lines to the stage, like the obvious art of the funny paper. But his silence was a threat. Like everyone else on the campus who had come in contact with him, Sister Raymond was finding his great simplicity not at all simple to meet. Almost, she reflected nervously, it was a monstrous characteristic, because it impelled him to say exactly what he thought, kindly and sincerely, but nevertheless with the stubbornness of complete conviction. There was the matter of the studio, Sister remembered with a shudder. She had heard the story direct from Sister Osmond, whose graciousness had been ineffective for once. The artist had taken one look at the cozy small room flooded with sunshine, nicely curtained, carpeted, furnished with easy chairs and a polished mahogany table, and was now installed, at his own insistence, over a barn-like storage room over the gymnasium in the wing jutting out into the convent garden. No curtains, cold north light, no rugs, an old pine-topped table, and a collection of waste-baskets. Across one unbroken wall of that studio, Sister Raymond pondered. A huge canvas was hung, awaiting the artist's inspiration to become the backdrop for the last act of Mustard Seed. The other acts were being done against a sky-drop with set-pieces in the form of church spires, trees, and rocks. But the last act required something more, something to set off the climax of the play. But if Tolvoldsen didn't like the play, he would say so, in his magnificently simple way, and the result might be no backdrop. Sister Raymond shot a glance at him around her coif. He was so intent now that he was whistling through his nose. But her movement broke in upon his concentration. She shivered, reminding herself that his verdict would probably be an excellent furthering of her humility. Beautiful, he murmured. Oh. Not the play, no. Oh. No, the play is rather bad, but the girls cannot be anything but beautiful. Not because they act well, or speak well, or sing nicely, for some of them are atrocious. No, but because of what they are. Youth is a beautiful thing in itself. You'll know that, sister, when you are as old as I am. 
You see, they are not playing at acting, hope and faith. They hold those wonders in their youth. His eyes are upon the two girls who play the parts of hope and faith, Trillian Pierce and Helen Perry, coming hand in hand to downstage center in a challenge to their own destruction. They would not be destroyed, of course. Buffeted by all the wickedness the playwright could call up, they would persevere through two more acts and stand triumphant at the final curtain. Sister Raymond, rebellious over Tolwitzen's frankness, listened to the stilted, poetic lines the girls were speaking, and knew that he was right. The whole production, however, will be chalked up as another success in St. Aurelian's endless repertoire of successes, because the audience would pay small heed to what their daughters said. That they spoke at all would be enough. Sister Raymond turned to Tolwitzen with the idea of making some sort of apology for what she had been thinking but the words never were spoken. The artist, his hair on end, was leaning forward, his gaze fastened on one of the girls so intently that the sister was struck with a curious sense of violence. Startled, she traced his attention to the stage, to Trillian Pierce, young Hope, who stood lilting her lines. Sister Raymond, rigid with surprised disapproval, made no movement. Yet the man swung around to look straight into her eyes, I do not know the girl, he said softly. I am unacquainted with all but a few who attend my classes. Sister Raymond's mouth opened and closed, but she could not speak. To her great relief, Tolwitzen again turned his eyes to the stage with the mien of any interested observer. Now for the backdrop, sister. I believe in immensity of purple shadow. He talked on in a low voice. Sister Raymond nodding at a few of the right times. The backdrop was now a matter of minor importance, pushed into obscurity by the burning question of whether or not she should report to Mother on Mr. Tolvoltson's upsetting behavior. Was this the raising of the viper's head, which Mother had dreaded from the first moment? At his age? Sister Raymond realized that the stage manager had called, Last curtain, several minutes ago, and she took advantage of the law to leave her place. I'll dismiss them and be right back, Mr. Tovoltson. I think your idea for the design is splendid. She hurried down the aisle. Now listen, girls. Sister Gaspard is ready for a costume fitting in the sewing room. The sister's mind went automatically along the well-known grooves, and behind them she came to a conclusion that had nothing to do with mustard seed. Since the Christmas season was always a rush, and hardly the time to bother Mother with vague assumptions, she would put Tolwoltson on probation, a sort of parole under her own surveillance. So long as he behaved, she would say nothing. But let him make one misstep, and every lift of an eyebrow would be promptly recounted to Mother. Sister was so cheered by this resolution, that when the girls filed out, she went back to the discussion of the backdrop in a receptive frame of mind. And so gallantly did Mr. Tolwoltson behave, that when they parted some time later, she had forgotten about the probation. Trillium, I saw your name on the blackboard, said Nerissa Brady, as the cast left the stage. Sister Laurent would have recognized the expression that tightened the girl's mouth. Was it, what was it, Nerissa? I didn't notice. Something about the office. You'd better go see. Oh, I will, right away. But Trillium knew she couldn't. Her knees were shaking too badly, and she sank down on the stage steps. What could there be in the office to add to her burden of fear? Nothing. 
she told herself, nothing. And yet the gaunt emptiness remained with her, as the manifestation of dread she had come to know so well during the days since all souls. They had been busy days, and that had helped. But there was always night when she lay wakeful, tired, and yet afraid to sleep because of the horrible dreams. She rubbed her forehead wearily. In a moment she would get up and go along to the sewing-room where Sister Gaspard awaited them, and afterward she could see what the message read. That would be time enough. Listen, Gaspard hasn't got the patience of Job. Come on, said Helen Perry, dragging Trillium to her feet. I'm just dead, but honestly dead. It takes so much out of one, doesn't it? I don't know whether I could go in for a career as an actress, but with a terrific impulse burning you, just actually burning you like a flame, it might be worse not to release it, don't you think, Trill? Helen sighed reverently. Then her butterfly thought flitted to a new blossom, and she caught Trillium's arm, laughing, her eyes glowing. Want to keep a secret with me? I've asked him to the play, and he's coming. Who's coming, now? Oh, honestly, Howard! Don't you remember that fascinating older man I danced with so much at the freshman mixer, Allison's brother? Trillium laughed. An older man? Howard Cooper is only about twenty-four. Twenty-five, and he's the most heavenly dancer. I happened to mention him in a letter to my mother, and she answered, By registered mail, imagine that I'm not to see him any more during the school year. But my goodness, all I've ever been out with him is to one movie in Marysville, and it was the early show, too. That certainly can't distract me too much. But I promised, of course, and I'm not breaking my promise now, because everybody will be here at the play. And if he comes, well, I have to be careful, because I don't want my mother taking steps. I get what you mean, said Trillium. The whole of last year had been enlivened by the parade of Helen's boyfriends. Most of them young football players who became red-faced and speechless in the select confines of the visitor's parlor. Once toward mid-year, Helen had been caught almost in the act of eloping, and Mrs. Perry had indeed taken steps. No novice was more severely guarded now than the young Miss Perry. Howard is an older man, she repeated with a pertness that her mother would have called spunky. I certainly have a right to lead my own life and I'm absolutely not going to tell him not to come. That would be too childish. After all, Mother Theodore is always urging us to make decisions for ourselves. Why, my own mother was married and had me when she was my age. But honestly, they all seem to forget that they were young once. It's the most disgusting. Good afternoon, sister. They were at the door of the sewing room, now filled with girls in their slips and girls already in their costumes. Above the noise, Sister Gaspar gave out orders and advice and reprimands. At the calmest of times, her voice was pitched to the stridency of a rescuer calling a ship in single-handed out of the fog, a trait which, in conjunction with her general brawn, had moved an imaginative girl to nickname her the Virgin Most Powerful. "'All right, girls, all right,' boomed Sister Gaspar. "'Helen and Trillium, your faith and hope? All right, Ivy, where are their dresses?' Ivy, a meek little sophomore, who daily considered changing her major from home economics to something that would not involve Sister Gaspard, scuttled to the long rack where drifts of chiffon and tulle hung. 
Oh, aren't they the most divinely yummy things? Helen exclaimed, pulling off her sweater. And they're exactly alike. Which is mine, Ivy? Your faith, aren't you? This one with the pink veil. Trillium's veil is blue. Isn't that sweet? Hope and faith, wandering through the world in pink and blue. Such innocent colors. Sister sure let herself go this time, Mary Elizabeth said admiringly. She wasn't the only one, said Ivy. What well, we've gone through. I've sewed until I feel like the song of the shirt. But she does twice as much herself. Every time I decide to get out of home ec, I get kind of a vision of the most powerful, tearing around, doing more than can be expected of mortal man. And I wind up with a rededication ceremony among my pots and pans. Doggone it, she added thoughtfully. Trillium, diverted by the Amazon accomplishments of Sister Gaspard, felt safe and secure. Safety in numbers was a cliché, because it was true. In the crowded, busy college life lay her perfect refuge. All right, girls, all right, Sister Gaspard intoned. Quiet, please. With one hand under her scapular like Napoleon in the historic pose, she waited until Ivy wanted to drop a pin and hear the crash. All right, now, your costumes are finished, girls. The sewing classes have done a beautiful piece of work, right down to the final pressing. Since the dress rehearsal is tomorrow afternoon at four, I'm turning the costumes over to you now, and each of you will be responsible for her own. And notice I say responsible. Her head turned deliberately so that in spite of the limited field of vision enforced by her coif, her inspection covered every young lady before her. The dressing rooms are crowded, but there are racks provided where you may hang the costumes. There will be no excuse for damage to any. Senior girls will use the dressing room to the right of the stage, juniors and all others on the left. Any questions? No, sir, the girls murmured. All right, then, you may go. Oh, one more word. If, I say if, there should be an accidental tear of any costume, bring it straight to me. That is all. The room filled again with chatter, and under cover of it Ivy murmured, All right, girls, all right, but if you rip something, I positively dare you to dump it in my lap to mend. Don't worry, we'd drown ourselves in the bayou first, Helen assured her. Come on, Trill. Hurrying to the backstage dressing room, then along the hall to the bulletin board, Trillium tried to keep down her apprehension. It could be a perfectly meaningless message. It could be but it wasn't. She read it, then read it again. A delivery, and she knew what the delivery would be. I never thought of that, she whispered. Huh? Trill, you look like you're going to faint, Helen cried. I'll get sister. Trillium grabbed the tail of her sweater. I'm fine now. Too many rehearsals, that's all. I'll go to the office later. But it's right on our way upstairs. Why don't we stop now? I think something's wrong with you, Trill. Honestly, you look scared. No, Trillium said sharply, and forced a laugh. But it was not a success. No, I'm not scared. I just know what the delivery is. She paused, took a long breath to steady herself, and continued. It's only my coat, sent out from the furriers in Marysville. I stored it with him this summer. Only your coat, that heavenly thing. 
Listen, missus, we're picking it up this very minute. I'm dying to see it again. And Helen pulled her along so that Trillium dared not hang back. I've done the wrong thing again, the frightened girl thought. Made a fuss over getting the coat and brought about the exact opposite of what I intended. Leave the coat where it was. That had been her impulse. Take it up later, when she could be alone, and she could push it into the back of her closet without even opening the box. No one would ask about it. But now Helen would go around gushing over it, and if she told Helen to keep quiet, that would arouse suspicion, and there would be talk about Trillium's strange behavior, and the coat must not be seen on the campus. There was no time to think further. Already they were outside of the suite, which consisted of outer office, private office, and mother's parlor. Helen threw back her shoulders. Head up, my child. Radiate womanly vitality. Be a credit to St. Aurelian's. The door of the inner office was closed, and from behind it came a voice in a masculine register. On one of the well-polished, uncomfortable chairs, Sister Lawrence sat waiting. Good afternoon, sister, said Helen. Sister did not hear her. In the doorway behind Helen, Trillium stood, listening in evident terror. Her eyes shadowed with it, as they had been on the night of all souls. What is it, dear? Sister exclaimed. The girl remained staring at the closed door, and it was Helen who answered. We came for her package, sister. I see it here on the mail table. Maybe there's a letter for one of us, to trail. Helen, oblivious to the undercurrent, rifled through the letters on the table. Sister Laurent was genuinely concerned about Trillium. What in the world could it be that was so intolerable that could smudge circles under her eyes and drain her face of flesh and color? Helen, would you mind? Sister began, thinking to give the other girl an errand which would leave Trillium alone with her. But the door of Mother's office opened, and Mother's low voice came out with Mr. Archer. Mother herself stood in the doorway, Mr. Archer bowing with his usual deep respect, Sister Laurent on her feet. Since it was as natural for Helen to draw a man's attention as it was for her to breathe, she caught up the box, holding it against her, smiling from Mother to the gentleman, whom she considered so romantic. "'Good afternoon, Mother. Good afternoon, Mr. Archer,' she said in a tremulous voice. Crispin bowed again, gravely. Helen's performance being what it was, it held Mother and Mr. Archer for divergent reasons. But Sister's eyes were on Trillium. No wider than she had been, but that was impossible. She lingered in the outer doorway. I see you have your box, Trillium. When Trillium did not reply on the moment, Helen said, Yes, Mother, thank you. Her nod dismissed the girls, but Trillium did not see it for her eyes were on the floor in unreasoning panic. Mr. Archer couldn't help hearing her name. He might repeat it in the guest house, and Jim, whoever he was, would wonder if this could be Dulcie's daughter. Trill, wake up! Helen whispered, nudging her companion into the hall with the box in her arms. She was in so exalted a state that she failed to notice Trillium's silence as they climbed the stairs. Don't you think older men have something, Trill? Hilaria says I'm madly missing half my life when I don't take Mr. Archer's creative writing course, but getting to know him outside of class, I mean, that's a tribute to your personality, Trill. 
He has to be nice to those other girls. But us, after all, friendship is a selective thing, I mean. Trillium only nodded. Really, I don't think you're thrilled at all. Now, let's open the box and see what this marvelous hunk of mink looks like. It won't be any different than last year, Nell. But there was no shaking Helen. Thumping the box down on Trillium's bed, she cut the string and brought out the coat. Oh, Trill, would you, could you let me wear it the night of the play? I mean, when I meet Howard, he'd be super dazzled. It isn't every girl who has a fur coat. I mean, they're a luxury in the South. And sometimes I think I'd be willing to live in the North if I could honestly have one. Trillian watched Helen in the coat, twisting and turning before the small dressing table mirror. It was simplest now to let her think she could wear the coat, but no one, not even she herself, would appear in it. The soft fur rippled with Helen's posing. The sleeves fell away from her wrists luxuriously. This was a coat to dream about. Timeless in fashion, because the designer had had in mind a woman rather than a style. Exactly when her mother had come into possession of that coat, Trillium did not know. But it had been some time before her father died. In that terrible, hurried packing, she had seen it, jammed into a trunk. Not again until Uncle Henry had shipped it to her the summer before last, when she celebrated her eighteenth birthday. It would be a perfect thing to identify her if Jim should see it. Mink, Helen breathed, stroking the silky sleeve. Trillian felt a wave of physical illness break over her. She had been so careful about her name, yet today it had come out. This is what could happen, without warning, at any hour of any day, some unexpected thing to trip her up in spite of every precaution. She jumped up, snatching the coat from Helen. She couldn't think, now, of what to do. Her mind was useless to her but she would have to dispose of the coat before the night of the play. When Helen was gone, she hung it in the far end of her closet so that anyone opening the door would not see it. If only she could hang away her name. But how useless it was to worry. Mr. Archer's attention had been on Helen. In all probability, he had not even heard the name. Down in the office, Crispin Archer was answering Sister Lawrence's polite inquiry. The novel's doing famously, sister. Whether the reviewers will see its merits, I don't know, but I'm enjoying my first attempt at fiction. It's an experience. So you do not find your teaching duties too time-consuming? Mother asked. Crispin Archer made the expected protest, then said casually, Trillium, isn't that what you call the girl? An odd name. I'm always on the hunt for names with individuality, and they're fiendishly hard to find. I'll ask her permission to use Trillium for my heroine. I've been calling her Hetty Rose, and she's a slob. As Trillium, she'd scintillate. Mother's mouth became firm. You need ask no permission, Mr. Archer. Names are not copyrightable. A Trillium is a rather common woods flower. You might come across it anywhere. Archer's eyes danced, and it occurred to Sister Laurent that he was ripping Mother. One of the tools of his trade would be knowing what was in public domain and what was not. You relieve me of a pleasant chore, mother, he said. Good afternoon, mother, sister. Although he really only nodded, he gave the impression of bowing from the waist, then swung to the door with his queer walk and was gone. I wonder if I like that man, 
mother said with unexpected frankness. Love thy neighbor, Sister Laurent laughed. She had come on an errand concerning her work, but the happenings of the past few minutes erased it from her mind. She turned to mother with a puzzled frown. Mother, what actually do we know about Trillian Pierce? The name again? No, mother, the girl. Very little, I believe. It's surprising how little, now that I consider it. How strange that you should bring it to my attention. Come into my office, please. They brought out Trillium's card from the files. Mother looked it over thoughtfully. We seem to have scant information, sister. Her father died when she was thirteen, I suppose from some illness, and about the same time the mother disappeared. Whether the mother died or deserted her, I don't know. Her tuition has always been paid by an uncle in New Orleans, and he writes to her regularly. She spends her vacation there. Mother dropped the card back into the folder. And that's all. Then she couldn't be having family trouble, said Sister Laurent. She is coming along well in her studies. That is, well for her. But I've had the impression that she's worried about something. Perhaps it's because I'm so fond of her. Mother nodded. It's the same with all of us, sister. Trillium has a place of her own. Well, I'll wait a little longer and see if she comes to me. Quite often she does. But if she shouldn't, and her anxiety continues, I'll have a little talk with her. Thank you, mother, said Sister Laurent. Over in the guest house, Franz Eric was polishing golf clubs in the middle of the living room when Crispin Archer strolled in and flung himself into a chair. A week of existence under the same roof had weathered the three into Uncle Tor and the boys, and the boys had already come into that easy stage of companionship where silence is as friendly as speech. Crispin lighted his pipe, squinting at Franz through the smoke. After a long time, he observed, Some cute kids around here. So I've noticed. No one they call Trillium. The club slipped in Franz's hand, knocking over the jar of polish and he righted it before he replied. Can't say that I do. I teach badminton to Hilaria, tennis to Nerissa, but I have not a single trillium to call mine own. A little dark thing, enormous eyes. Scads of them, but they're only sets of uncoordinated muscles to me yet, Chris. Tender little shoots, all fenced in by mother's capable hands. Sometimes I wonder what that woman's past has been to make her so suspicious of the male. Lurid, hey? Maybe, or frustrated, it could add up to the same thing. Franz blew on the metal club and rubbed hard. Next time I'm going to get me a job in an old lady's home, where I can show my true colors and proud to my heart's content. I'll be with you, laddie, said Crispin Archer. Franz saw his own pixie grin reflected on the surface of the niblick in his hand. Tomorrow morning, if all went as scheduled... He would be giving her first golf lesson to Miss Trillium Pierce. End of chapter 4